It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. Today, our guest is steel panist and composer Joy Lapse, whose latest release is titled Girl in the Yard. new album is deeply personal and it's a piece of work featuring original music and special guests and it's her fifth as a leader and is the first full-length album exclusively featuring original music and arrangements. Joy, thank you for joining us on All That's Jazz. Thank you so much for having me. I am excited to do this interview. Well, it's a pleasure to have you with us, and you are such an interesting musician, especially when you are that of a steel panist, and you're based in Toronto, Canada, so the million-dollar question, if you'll pardon this question, uh, and I think it's okay for me to ask it because I have Canadian in my heritage anyway. (laughs) How is it that a Canadian, who's obviously not going to be sitting on a beach and under a palm tree, come to the involvement of being a steel pan artist? That's a great question. It's, it's something that happened. Um, it's not, I didn't set out for it to happen that way, but sometimes some of the really cool things that happen in life were not our ideas. I actually, I think I'll, I'll, I'll go back to my introduction to the steel pan if that's okay with you. Sure. So I learned the steel pan at my church. It's not that I hadn't been exposed to it, or I know that I'd heard it before that point. Definitely I'd heard it, but I'm definitely from Toronto. I am first-generation Canadian, but born to parents from the Twin Islands of Antigua and Barbuda. So both of my parents are from Antigua. And if you know Toronto, um, it's one of those cities that have a large Caribbean diasporic community. And so I attended an Anglican church, the Church of the Nativity, that was predominantly Afro-Caribbean. The minister was Afro-Caribbean, and they he, he decided he wanted to offer lessons, um, steel pen lessons. And my godmother, who also attended the church, she came running with her checkbook and said she and paid for my first set of lessons. And so me even being introduced to it was a result of a a leader just essentially being culturally responsive because we could have knitted we could have baked cookies you know but he wanted to introduce steel pen lessons and as i write in my liner notes i started my saturday mornings learning steel pan and then i went to tutoring and then i had west african dance and drum and that's how i spent my saturdays Again, because they were looking at, you know, what what would the community respond to? And so that's how I started. Initially, I I definitely grew to love the steel pan. I, I was always wanting to practice. I didn't have one at, at first. And so after church on Sundays, I'd want to get the key to the steel pan room and practice. You know, while other kids might have been running around and playing or talking, I just wanted to practice. And eventually um, the ensemble... The group that, you know, it kind of organically grew, they were called, we were called the Nativity Steel Angels, and we went to other churches and other organizations to do gigs. 
And my teacher, Vince, at the time, Vince Cato, he, he played as a solo pan player. And, you know, a lot of people, if you know the practice, a lot of solo pan players will play gigs with backing tracks and play a lot of cover songs. And he did that a lot. And he would bring me on his gigs and I'd maybe play a duet with him here and there. And eventually when he was had too many or he might have, um, you know, two gigs on the same night, he would send me off and he'd prepare me to go and do this. And so I never set out to to be a steel pan performer, a steel pan artist, but it kind of happened that way. And as I started to perform more, I started to get more calls. And even my work moving into education was because I'd be out at a gig and somebody would hear me play and they'd say, well, I'm a teacher. Can you come to my school? and teach my children about the instrument that you're playing. And so that's kind of how it got started. There's more to that, but I feel like you have more questions. I do in many respect, and thank you for that. By the way, you mentioned your liner notes. They are absolutely fantastic. And they're very descriptive of who and what you are and what the meaning of this album is. Uh, what I found interesting, not only uh, in the liner notes, but also what you had just said, Joy, is that a lot of this started in church. And I'd like to focus a little bit on the steel pan itself for a moment before we get into the album and your the release uh, that's uh, now currently out there on the market. And, and ask you, the steel pan itself had kind of a disreputable reputation in the music world and in in culture and community to begin with. In fact, since you mentioned church, unlike a lot of other instruments, the steel pan was not welcome in most sacred places. So how did it end up in your church? Yeah, that's a great question. The steel pan is an instrument of resistance, and it's an instrument that it's what we do with the steel band and the pan yard is rooted in community building. And so um, those are two things that I really appreciate it, appreciate about it. And when we talk about the steel pan not traditionally being accepted, it's because it was anything, anything coming out of West African roots, because we trace the history of the steel pan all the way back to West Africans who were enslaved and brought through the transatlantic slave trade to, you know, the Caribbean, to, um, to North America and and so like we look at we trace it back to the to the skin drums and we have this history of trying to trying to keep our culture alive trying to make music trying to use rhythm as a means of and drums as a means of communication as a means of experiencing joy and happiness and having that constantly shut down and so it's a, it's a really interesting history so we went from skin drums we did to, went to something called the tambu bamboo if you ever go to um Tobago especially, it's filled with um, beautiful rainforests and a lot of bamboo trees. And so we, when, we when we were told we couldn't play the skin drums, they went to the tambu bamboo. And when they got to, um, and they had the tambu bamboo bands. And when they got pushed back on the tambu bamboo bands, they went to something that they call the iron bands, anything out of metal, your brake iron, um, you know, like literally a part of your car, a scratcher, a biscuit tin, garbage cans, like metal garbage cans. And, and then we get to the steel pan. And so, and the people who were a part at the forefront of that evolution and that kind of re, reinvention, whenever something needed to be new, it was those of West African descent. And Trinidad is a place, Trinidad and Tobago is very ethnically diverse, you know, but oftentimes in spaces, we have specific ethnicities that experience more systemic racism than others. And so we're talking about Black 
predominantly black men um, who are at the forefront of this instrument. And I think it's that, it's the um, the poverty that comes with that lineage of coming out of enslavement. And and also there's this general, I, I, I it's the colonialism, it's the racism, it's the oppression, but it's this idea that if it wasn't European music and traditional classical music, that it was less than. So these are all the reasons why we wouldn't have accepted a steel pan in the church. And and also when you look at the um, those that were at the forefront of developing the steel pan, again, their poverty was a big issue. And so sometimes steel bands would meet up and they would fight. And so there was violence attached to steel pan. Um, that was really unfortunate. But what was, and, and so the, and the focus was, oh, look at these people fighting. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That was the focus. We weren't focusing on the fact that they were inventing a whole instrument, that it's really technically complex. If you want to build a steel pan, it's really a handful of people with the ability, with the engineering capability to understand the harmonics of how to tune the instrument. And so that was lost. I think we weren't, there wasn't a lot of focus on that. And so you come back to asking, you know, why would it not be? appreciated in the church is because it was like only certain instruments were more accepted in the church. And so just my steel pan has 12, my, those 12 tones that you have on the, on the, um, on the piano or on the trumpet, and it wasn't being perceived that way. And so, for, and so why I write about the fact that I take it, I don't take it lightly that I was as a young girl, that I was able to learn steel pan in church and be, and as a woman to do that, like, I really don't take it lightly. And so still the steel band movement is definitely, there's a lot more women that are present mm-hmm. and that are um, in the forefront, but, you know, at these, at, you know, in the early 1930s and forties, like at the time of the emergence of the instrument, it's not something that you would have experienced. And, um, and I think it's a, I think it's a loss because it's, you know, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful instrument and it can play. <laughs> whatever you can play on some of those other traditional instruments oh of course and you know it it just really emits beautiful music it has such a wonderful sound to it and i I would think the opposite of wow this would be something especially of your heritage to be played in church because it's almost a religious experience listening to some of the music of the pan if I go into a classroom and I teach about steel pan, that ability to be innovative with the materials available, that's something that I'm always trying to reiterate to students that I work with. Everything that we see when we look at the, the evolvement of the instrument, it's based on materials that were in their environment, but you put it together and it makes some beautiful music. And then we, we get to the, to the steel drums. Trinidad had a host of 55-gallon oil drums because the island is oil-rich. And so it was that transition from the metal drums to the 55-gallon oil drums and now 55-gallon drums that are intentionally prepared for the purpose of steel drums. But again, it's, they were, it's, it's just like, what do I have and what can I create with it? It's so innovative and so creative and so resourceful. And I think that, and that's why when I think about steel pan, there's so many angles that we can just get really excited about it. And you've nailed one of those on the head is that resourcefulness and that ability to be innovative with what you have at your fingertips. So basically it's kind of like a drum and percussion because uh, now I, I think it's what could be described as chromatically pitched percussion instrument. Correct. And so how do you play that? Unlike maybe uh, 
uh, one instrument that has valves, the the skin uh, mentioned uh, for drums, etc. Uh, I, I've always been fascinated by how you, as an artist, play the steel drum. It's not numbered. You don't see white keys, black keys. Uh, how do you know where to go? How many notes are on that head of the pan? Great question. So we play with mallets. That's the first thing I'll start with. We play with mallets. Sometimes um, they're metal. Sometimes they're wooden. But the the ends of the mallets that strike the drum, they're rubber. And so that's how we get the sound out of it. The actual pans that you see. So typically, if you go out and see somebody play, you're likely seeing a professional play, so you won't see the notes. But most steel pan instructors, when they start to teach their students, they're going to teach them on a drum where the notes are labeled. So you actually do get to see the names of the notes. <laughs> um, and that kind of like guides you through. And then eventually, and similarly, like if you were in a beginner piano class, they might label the keys and then eventually you memorize them and you don't need them anymore. Um, in terms of the setup, the there's different drums in the steel orchestra or the steel band. We have um, a lead or soprano voiced pan um, that was originally called a tenor pan. It's kind of confusing. We have a double second pan that's like an alto voice. We have a triple cello, triple guitar, or a double guitar, like some of these like tenor voiced instruments for cello. And then we have the bass instruments. And so when you ask about the setup, depending on the voice of the pan, the setup is different. And the other thing too, with the steel pans, not all, not every voice has the same setup because tuners, the ones who build the pans, they kind of almost like, sometimes they want to, they have a different touch they might put on it. So we, um, because of the age of the instrument, less than a hundred years old, and because of the, the choices from the tuners, there's a bit of a lack of a standardization. The one thing that is typically standardized now, I would say across the board for most of the drums that I typically play, which is your lead voice or soprano voice pan, they're set up in the cycle of fifths and fourths. And it has two and a half chromatic scales, so two and a half octaves. And yeah, two and a half chromatic scales. And that, so that's, that, that's that one. And so once you understand that cycle of fifths and fourths, it's easy. And if you know that theory, um, for those that don't know theory, that's okay. For that's those okay. of you that know theory, right. you'll know that once it's set up in the cycle of fifths and fourths, it's easy to find your semitones. It's easy to find your major scales, your diminished scales, all of that. Um, so it's kind of like that mix of like understanding the patterning and then understanding the theory behind that patterning. It's a little bit more complex with some of the others. Well, and uh, I'm sure that it, it's also the the means or manner by which you strike it, where you strike it, uh, to get the tones and the notes that you want. But let me ask you, do you have to tune up a steel pan at, at any point? How do you tune up a steel pan? Uh, do you use a blowtorch? Do you use metal polish? I don't mean to sound so naive about it. No, it's a great question. You actually use a hammer. Yeah. And um, use a hammer and a tuner. And so, and it's, I don't do this, but we um, steel pan tuners, they know exactly where to hit. They know how to get the harmonic. They know if you have to hit the center of the note in between the notes. So it's a very unique and, um, you know, it takes a lot of skill. It takes a lot of time to develop this skill, but yeah, it's with a hammer because it, essentially you have to almost change the shape of the drum to achieve the tuning that you want. 
So let's get back to the music that you make with it. The release that you have called Girl in the Yard, this is your fifth as a leader. And this one is very special because I also uh, find underneath that there is a theme or a tone to this that you're trying to get across about a girl in the yard. In other words, the woman playing the pan because it was not always a common practice to find the woman playing the pan. In fact, it was highly discouraged. Uh, Parents used to say, you know, first of all, don't play the pan. Secondly, don't hook up with a pan player uh, (laughs) because you're going nowhere with this. Yeah. um, So I definitely, back in the day, definitely, um, it was definitely something that was looked down upon to be a woman identifies a woman and to be playing steel pan or like you said, hooking up or dating a steel pan player. I would say that now the, um, and so, and so I, I definitely just want to reiterate that I don't take it lightly that how I learned and what I'm able to do with the instrument and what I have the privilege to do with the instrument. I will also note that now that we have um, the presence of women in the steel band is a lot more common um, a lot of bands out there, you might see 50% of the band, um, they might be female or um, are identified as women or maybe even more. We're seeing more um, women in leadership. And I think the girl in the yard of today, um, in terms of like that idea of like having, being able to take up space in this world that we don't see as much of is us as band leaders, us as arrangers, us as tuners, in in those spaces because those are almost like or as drummers like those are some of the most sought after positions or when people you know can at least have a career doing this it's typically in those spaces and the only other one I would say that we've that there's more women is probably more in the education space and so again I'm not I'm not by any means the first, but to be able to be a composer, a band leader, to be, you know, arranging music in this space, to be educating in this space is not um, as common as it is amongst men. Is part of the message from the album one that you're saying there needs to be more women involved in Steel Pan? Oh, I I believe so. And I think it's a bigger... The, con- the, the idea for me was, number one, I wanted to pay homage to the people who allow me to show up and do what I do in this space. But I also want to say that, yes, there should be more. Yes, there should be more in this women in this space. But yes, there should be more women in spaces where we traditionally aren't able to be. And I think the reason why it's so important for me to, to pay homage to the people who allow me to do this is because it's important for my voice to be where it is. And so when I, and I say that to other women, other people that we need to kind of sometimes take up a little bit more space and have our voices heard. Mm-hmm. And as women, as sometimes, especially as parents, sometimes we just, it's, it's a little bit more difficult to do that. And we have to be there because what we have to say is important. And so that's my message, I would say, is like, we need to make space for other women to be in places where we typically don't have their input because there's something unique about our lived experience and, and not just because we're women, but because just as people. And we, it's almost like if we're not leaving that room or creating opportunities, then we're missing insight. We're missing a a perspective that could really change the trajectory of where we're going. 
In the album itself, uh, this was recorded in Toronto at the Canterbury Music Company. Is that where this uh, started out? How long has uh, this album been in development to where you oh, reached the studio? It was an, it's a, it was a, it's been a while. So it, some of the music I wrote, um, started writing while I was doing my master's. And then we started to do some recording in 2017 before I had my son and then finished it, you know, in, <laughs> in waves over the last um, couple of years. And then it was pretty much done, you know, by last year, everything was kind of done. But just, you know, taking time to get it out. And a lot of the music, it seems, when you were putting this together and uh, producing it in the studio, that a lot of the tracks seem to be dedicated to people that are important to you in your life. And it opens up with the, the track, which is called Lulu's Dream. Who is Lulu and what is that about? Oh, great question. So my sister, her name is Sabira Rashida Lulu Lap. And so this song is about her and she, I, so I have three sisters who are all fabulous and she is extremely thoughtful. She's really, really passionate and she really cares deeply about um, her friends and family. And the thing that I all, the thing that I like to highlight about her is just how she, what showing up looks like and, and supporting her friends and family it's just so beautiful. And, um, but she's also somebody who isn't afraid to step up and speak up for somebody who doesn't have a voice. And one story that I like to share is that um, I remember she, she lives in, in Maryland and she came home um, and she was at my place and she went to the grocery store just down the street. And there was a woman, an older woman who was, had some mental um some kind of, there was a clear mental illness happening. She was likely unhoused, but was um, attempting to take food from the grocery store, to steal food from the grocery store because she didn't have food. And before she exited the grocery store, um, one of the grocery clerks, or it was the clerk or the security said to her, the next time I catch you in here, I'm going to kill you, Ooh. which is, and I see your face because it's really outrageous. And it's, it, the thing that makes it even more outrageous is you really can't apprehend a person for stealing because they haven't stolen until they've left the building. So this happened inside. And so she stood up for the woman and um, she put the security guard in his place. And the woman, she said the woman just kind of, it just seemed like nobody had ever like stood up for her. And, um, and not to condone, you know, stealing, but the reaction of the security guard was really uncalled for. And so she reported him to, um, to the grocery store, but she came home and she just cried. She just cried because she just thought like, how can somebody be so cruel to somebody? And so, you know, she just, she'll get in there and she'll stand up, but she also, she just has this softness to her. And so I think when you hear the intro, you know, the first part of it, it's kind of smooth and soft. And then it kind of gets at you in the, almost like that verse section.
And then when you get to the guitar solo, he's just going for it. But then when you hear the sax solo and the call and answer, um, I think you, so you kind of just hearing that balance of like, I will protect you, but I'm also gonna, I'm, I'm also like have feelings. I'm, I'm soft and I'm passionate. You know what I mean? So I think that's what I was wanting to, um, to kind of communicate with that. Yeah, that's Lulu's dream. You, you pay tribute to another sister in uh, Josie's Smile. What a beautiful name to begin oh. with of, of the track. Tell me about Josie. Thank you. That's so my sister, her name is Shaquilla Josanne Alexander. So Josie's like a short for Josanne. And um, we're actually half sisters. And so she's part Trinidadian and she loves soca. She loves soca music. She actually DJs um, a bit on the side and she's just always has this little smile. Sometimes she has these, you know, as sisters, you kind of joke on each other and, you know, sometimes make fun of each other. But she always has these jokes that because she's so sweet, that you kind of get left fielded, <laughs> and, you know, just the smile that comes after it. So it was kind of like trying to, uh, to kind of channel her, her softness, her sweetness, her energy and her love for Calypso. You know, it doesn't it doesn't go to Soka, but it was kind of like you know in that going towards that direction. And I have to ask you about Sharifa the Great. Who is Sharifa the Great? Okay, so my oldest sister is Asha Juliet Sharifa Laps, and she is fiercely protective of her youngest sisters, unapologetically. You know, she's a leader. Um, she actually leads an online group of almost probably almost nine thousand women now. Um, just building, building community, building economic empowerment among um, Black women and Black families in the Durham region here where we are, just again, a part of the greater Toronto area. And um, she's just, she's just a force to be reckoned with. hear the song when you hear the drums especially that is channeling that fierce protection of Ashalux Sharifa the Great. I love the name of it. it 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 sounds like some mythical giant character in history that uh, it, it, it it's destiny that Sharifa the Great is uh, the ruler of a wonderful community and dynasty. <laughs> yes. I love it. I love it. I'm going to tell you you said that. 
Okay. Uh, so uh, I, I love the, the, the fact that you paid this nice tribute to part of your family, but who, who does the, the fly track uh, play a tribute to, or is oh. it a, tri- a tribute to someone? Yeah, yeah. Um, so fly, fly is actually to my dad. My dad, so, you know, a father of four girls, and one of the things he would always say, it's like, he, I think he was fairly strict, really protective. Um, I, it's always funny now that I'm older and sometimes I'll go back and play for cor- mini organizations I've been playing for, for years. And the, and I'm like in my thirties and they'd be like, where's your dad? And I'm like, I could drive here myself now. <laughs> Cause he would drive me to my gigs. He would always make sure he'd come to the pan yard when I would play with my, the steel bands in this community. And he'd sit there and be there at my gigs and my rehearsals. And, um, you know, and it was really, really a really integral part of our lives, both my parents. And, but there came a point where he didn't want to micromanage and tell us what we could and couldn't do. He just said, you have your wings now. He said, you have your wings now. I feel like I've instilled enough for you to make thoughtful, informed, responsible decision. And so um, that's what kind of what that song is about. And so, and so Andrew Stewart, who produced the record, he, you know, and knowing my family, because he's a good friend of mine, he then thought about like how to reflect that in in the um, the song. And part of that comes with the, the people that are playing on it. So there's two that I want to mention in particular, Eddie Bullen, who um, he actually produced my first records that I've done and my first three. And he's like a father figure to our community of musicians. Everybody looks up to Eddie and especially in, um, you know, the smooth jazz, Afro-Caribbean jazz, a lot of the musicians just look up to him. And, um, and then Bruce Garrett, who actually just recently passed away. So he's the one playing melodica on the track and just like a father figure you, you know, to our, to our community. And so just kind of like that personnel choice with those Um, because my dad does not play an instrument (laughs) and um and the other piece is that when I was thinking about this and a lot of times when I write music I like to approach the music like popular music and I like to write music that people can engage with and walk away like you hear it once you hear it twice and you there's some kind of section in there that you can catch on to and hum and be a part of it like I really believe in extending that participatory steel band concept even in a space like in a in in the music that I write and so sometimes I write lyrics that nobody would know the lyrics but those are lyrics and melody that are kind of like coming out and so this one um it's a spread your wings and fly because you could do anything 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 spread your wings and fly that's like the melody but you would never know you just hear the melody and that was about so that's kind of like what that one's about you certainly pay a wonderful tribute to family members and so on but i have to ask you did you have a grandmother that plays the pan because you have a track called granny's pan yeah okay only because well, 
the viewers won't be able to see this, but I feel like you should see this because we're looking at each other. But this is the pan that I'm playing on this track. So it's an older style pan. Wow. It's not chromed. It's it's not it's it's uh, it has all the chromatic notes, but just um, the finish of it has that older sound. And so um, the reason why I called it Granny's Pan is because she actually bought the steel pan for me. So after she saw that I was getting into it, she she purchased the steel pan and she'd actually, um, I would be on the phone with her. She, she, she lived her whole life in Antigua and I'd be on the phone with her and she'd be striking the pan and trying to like sing how great thou art. Like no concept of like key center to like what she was singing. Didn't matter. Sweetest thing ever. And so she bought this instrument and it was, I thought it was a really very, um, it was a very beautiful gesture. And I think the person that sold her, sold it to her knew that it wasn't modern and knew that it was enchromed and knew that she was elderly. You know what I mean? But I still think that it just, it, it served its purpose and it gave that old, that, um, you know, traditional steel pan feeling and um, just like a nice touch to the record. And so I wanted to, you know, we thought that we would pay homage to her there. actually a cool kind of production idea that Andrew he saw that I was paying tribute to my sisters and my mom and he was like why not (laughs) why not Mm -hmm. go to the grandmothers you know and so that was Vilma Morrissey gave me that steel pan but um you know I uh, also have to shout it at Edna Laps who's my grandmother on my dad's side so Grammy wasn't a panist uh, and you didn't sneak into the kitchen one night into her kitchen steal a pan, no pun intended, uh, and take it to a tunist and said, here, make this into an instrument. No, 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 no. <laughs> so, not at uh, all, not at all. And thank you for sharing that story and, and sharing that I wish our listeners could see the pan uh, because that really is a nice tribute to her. And she meant well, and uh, while it wasn't the dream pan that uh, most panists would love to have what was significant and important about it was it was from granny what should the takeaway be for listeners of this album oh um i would say that it's multi-layered i think what i would say is as it says in the liner notes it says um it says to take up space it says uh play the pen um the pen play the pan or play the pen if you're gonna you know as a colloquialism, I think I want people to walk away uplifted and I want people to feel empowered to kind of take that concept of taking up space and to feel uplifted for whatever that means for them. For me, it meant overcoming a lot of the things that I've had to overcome in the last few years. And we actually, my husband and I, my husband is a drummer as well. And we've been double billing and touring, just toured across the country. And we and we took our children with us and our nurse and one of our caregivers for some of the one of the stops. And I think that 
that concept of taking up space, I think I want people who traditionally, and I think in a lot of cases it's women and women musicians to feel comfortable to take up that space and to be present. And I think that I want, especially after this tour, I really felt like presenters were so open to finding out how they could accommodate our family. And I think that that is so important because that meant that I was able to come and to play these shows and to have the impact that I think that I'm supposed to have. And so I think what I want women to take away from that is that it's okay to ask for that, to ask for those accommodations. I literally, they were like, okay, you're coming. Do you need car seats? Do you know what I mean? Do, okay, so we did this because this, oh, I got this space because this, this green room would have been better if you have to have the children there. And because my son has special needs, sometimes we have to have them. Like I take him to shows, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes I don't have a nurse. And so, and and I think that like, I, I don't want to, I don't want to get on the strong woman bandwagon or you're supposed to be so strong and that we're not allowed to break, but I want people to feel like your voice is important. What you have to say is important. If it's your art, whatever your contribution, like there's, there's a reason why you're here and it's not good enough to say that you can't do it because you just had two kids or that you can't do it, enter the barrier, Right we all have something to say in our own respective, you know, fields of study or, or um, practice, fields of practice. And so don't not do it because you don't think that you should make that accommodation should be made for you. No, that's what I want people to leave with and with some good music. A couple of uh, final things then, Joy, and, uh, and thank you so much for sharing all this story with me. How can our listeners learn more about Joy Laps? Uh, I assume you have a website, maybe active on social media, etc. Yeah, you can visit me at my website. It's www.joylaps. That's J-O-Y-L-A. P is in Paul. P is in Paul. S is in Sam. Dot com. And I'm also on social media at Joy Laps Music. So I'm on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube, and working on my TikTok. <laughs> You know, um, but yeah, you can come and, you know, like have some, some nice video content on YouTube and I'm the most active, I would say, on Instagram and then Facebook. And in closing, what I would like to say is I'm going to borrow a little bit of the name of the album and a quote that you said. And I, I will tell you, Joy Laps, I am so glad and happy for you. And I'm glad that there is a girl in the yard and you play Depan. Thank you so much, Alan. I really appreciate this interview. So thoughtful. And we appreciate the fact that you have taken this time to share yourself and your music with us and being our guest on All That's Jazz. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with Toronto native, steel pan artist and composer, Joy Laps. We'd like to thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. And visit us again next time for another interesting conversation on All That's Jazz. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.